Today's sermon is entitled First and Second Thessalonians. My name is Reverend Derek Gilder, and the pastor of McKees Mills Baptist Church, and I want to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. We're going to start uh, an exciting series on two letters of Apostle Paul. He wrote to the church of Thessalonica, and I think this is really exciting. He writes about things that really affect us today. It's surprising. So many years have passed, and, and yet the same things that society faced back in Paul's day we're still facing today. So I, I think that's really awesome. And we're going to find out all sorts of different things we're going to look at. You're going to say, oh my goodness, I'm wrestling with that today too. We're going to look at things such as multiple gods and how do you handle it? And how do you handle the fact that you often get persecuted if you don't believe in all sorts of different gods? If you have a narrow belief in but one God, many people in society just Today we'll say you're narrow-minded or you're bigoted. And, and that's something that Paul's, people of Paul's day wrestle with too as well in the church. We're going to look at, are you really supposed to stay celibate until you get married? Are you supposed to, you know, not have sex until you get married? Are you supposed to keep your marriage bed pure? Paul addresses these issues. He also talks about the day of the Lord. When he returns, what is that going to be like? What about those people that already died? Are they going to be what? Caught up in heaven? How's it going to occur? Are they going to get to see the, the Lord return again? All these questions are answered and so much more. So I hope and pray you get a lot out of this series. I know that I already have, and I know as I go through this, I know I'm going to get even more because these two letters are very relevant to today. But let's start off first and foremost. I'm going to do an overview, and I think the very first thing I want to talk about when it comes to these letters is strategic location. Thessalonica is very important for us to understand where they are located. During the Roman rule from 167 BC to AD 395, Thessalonica functioned as one of the most important cities in all of Macedonia. And you can see it on the map there, Thessalonica, and it's just up from Athens and Greece. So this is, this is a province that's extremely significant. This province was founded by King Cassander. Uh, he basically took 26 different villages in the region. He made them all into one city, and he made this site in Therm, the location of Thessalonica. This is the main place in which he made as their capital. Now, here's the interesting thing. The city population is estimated, depending on what commentary you read, but anywhere from 100 to 200,000. Now, that doesn't seem like much today, does it? There's lots of cities that we have in this world that are far bigger than that. But in ancient times, that was huge. That was a big city. Matter of fact, it was one of the top 10 cities in all of the Roman Empire. Massive city. So we got to keep that in mind. And I got thinking, you know what? The success of Thessalonica was predominantly due to many geological factors. In other words, there's geographical factors that happened with this particular city, this landmass that made it exceptionally profitable. And I, got, I want to talk about them. First, the city was built on a natural road on the Aegean Sea. It had a deep anchorage, and you can see it here in the picture, and the waters were exceptionally deep there. Not only that, but it, this port had access to go out into the sea and basically go to Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. So you can almost imagine economically how beneficial that actually was. Uh, the other part of it is, is they had a road. It was called the Ignatian Way. And this was a road that um, the Romans built, and it connected their empire, various places of their empire. So anybody who was connected to this road was very prosperous. It's kind of like today. If you have the Trans-Canada uh, Trans Highway that goes near your area, then usually that area 
prospers. And if the highway happens to get moved and it gets placed somewhere else, then your place kind of loses out economically. This is the same idea. It gave uh, basically Thessalonica access to a whole bunch of different travel routes, but more importantly, trade locations. So a lot of trades people came in on this road and they stopped into Thessalonica and did lots of business. Third, Thessalonica was situated in fertile lands. It's nourished by abundance of uh, different rivers. One of them was Axius. The other one is Halicomon, and that's the river that you see here. But here's an important point. It was rich in mineral deposits, gold, silver, iron, copper, and lead. And it had a huge amount, as you can see in the picture, forests that they could use for timber and building. They were rich, rich in mineral resources. Since no other place in all of Rome had these kind of geographical um, um, beauties, in other words, uh, all this wonderful treasures, you know what? They were rich. They were large. And as a fellow historian said this, he said, you know what? As long as nature doesn't change, this city will always prosper. This city's still prospering today. The location is still good today, and they have all those advantages that I just mentioned. So that's the first thing that we got to understand. When we read the letters of First and Second Thessalonians, this is a very big and rich city within the Roman Empire. Got to keep that in mind, because that really plays an awful lot into Paul's writings. Let's take a look at the second thing that's very important for us to understand when we're reading in either of these letters. Number two. They had a favored political status within the Roman Empire. And I want to explain what that ultimately means. For instance, when a Macedonia, when, when, when there was a rebellion that came in, and, and you know what, they, they basically the Romans conquered them and they kind of crushed that rebellion. What was their response? Would you be bitter? Well, most people ultimately would be, wouldn't they? But not Thessalonica. When all these little tiny little places, these little places within the province, 26 of them, when they were all conquered and then they were all amalgamated into one, they weren't bitter. What they did is they gave their allegiance 100% to Rome. Matter of fact, the fellow who conquered them, a fellow named Miletus, they made a statue of him that you can see in the picture. And they basically put on the bottom of the statue, they said this, their savior and their benefactor. They were very smart when it came to politics. They were very quick to say to Rome, nah, we're not going to fight you. We're not going to be bitter towards you. We're actually going to embrace you and we're going to stay loyal to you forever. And that's important. Their loyalty was very strong historically. They switched their support at one point from Brutus to Cassius to Mark Antony and Octavian. As a result of giving support to both of those, they ended up getting a status of what is called a free city. This was rarely granted in the Roman Empire. When Rome actually conquered you, you weren't given the status of freedom. Not, no. Most times the answer was absolutely no to that. But they were given this status. Why? Because they showed loyalty to Rome. Remarkable loyalty. In other words, whoever was in power, they would sit and look at them and say, we're all in. We're 100% loyal to you. No matter who's in power, it doesn't make any difference. This favored status meant that Thessalonica had a lot of advantages over other places that were conquered. For instance, they didn't have pay, pay any tribute to Rome. They could mint their own coins. They were free from military occupation. In other words, Rome didn't have any garrisons there. And on top of that, they were free to govern themselves any way that they chose to. And I'll explain what that means a little bit later on. But 
Here's the thing. Here's what their government system basically looked like. They had uh, anywhere from five to six what is called politarchs. They were uh, democratically elected. They had a term of approximately one year, but they could actually apply and go on for more than one year. And they would evoke what is called the Assembly of the Citizens, and they would make decisions, and they would execute those decisions as they saw fit. Likely, there was, uh, uh, out of all the places here, the uh, women in, in most, most of these areas within Thessalonica were honored. They were actually given a much higher status than they were anywhere else, and they were given much authority. They were granted this freedom to govern their own affairs, but there was always strings attached to it. They got this freedom because of their loyalty to Rome, and as long as they remained loyal, they would stay free. They had a Roman treasurer there to govern their finances and to keep an eye on them. And they had many Roman officials living inside of the city. So if they decided at any point in time they weren't going to be loyal to Rome and they were going to rebel against them or even think about it, Rome would immediately know and evoke that wonderful status that they had. You know, this explains why when Apostle Paul gets there and he starts telling everybody about Jesus Christ and he starts preaching a king other than the emperor, this is why the mob gets all angry. This is why the politarchs are called in. This is why everything just kind of goes crazy, because they're very nervous, these Thessalonians, especially the officials, that the people of Rome, the officials sitting in Rome, are sitting in Thessalonica, might find out about it. And they would have. And they would have went back to Rome and said, you know what, these guys are starting to rebel. And they didn't want any hint of that whatsoever. So that's kind of a little bit about their political environment. But you know what, they had a very free one, and which most places didn't. Let's talk about religion just for a moment. What was their religious environment ultimately like? Well, here's the truth is they had many gods. Many, many gods. Like not just one, but a lot. And I'm going to talk about just a few of them. Their patron god, in other words, their god of their city, was called this fellow called Kabiris. And, and we really don't know much about him, to be very honest. I had a very hard time finding a picture of a statue of him. It wasn't very easy on the internet, and I apologize, it's a little bit on the fuzzy side. That's the best I could find. I couldn't find much information about him either. All it says in the historical books is he's a martyred hero, murdered by his two brothers, buried with symbols of royal power. He's expected to return, and when he comes back, he's going to go to the oppressed, the poor, and help them out. That's all I know about him. That's it. And I got to think, my goodness, but this was their main god of the city, their patron god. But they had many other gods besides that, for sure. When we look at the uh, archaeological evidence, when we look at coin evidence, we find out that uh, many different gods were present in that one particular place, such as Dionysius. You know, basically, you know, this this individual that is always associated with wine and drinking. And if you look at the next picture on the side, uh, Serapis, which is the Greco-Egyptian deity of the sun god. And then if you go a little bit further on in their history, you find out that Isis, the Egyptian goddess of, of love or healing or fertility or magic in the moon, or you look at the next one, Anubis, which um, is the Egyptian jackal-headed god of the afterlife. They believed in that too as well. And then, of course, they had some of the Roman gods, the main ones that you would expect them to embrace, and ultimately that would be Aphrodite's. Uh, the goddess of love, uh, Demeter, the goddess of the harvest and agriculture, and obviously Zeus, which would be the king of all the other gods. Not only did Paul have to contend with all these gods, which is 
Just that's only just a few of them that I've mentioned. The main ones. There were many more than that. Not only did he had to so-called compete with those gods for people's attention, but he also had to compete ultimately with the um, Judaism, which believed in the Mosaic Law, and and also emperor worship, which was really huge back then. In other words, the emperors portrayed themselves as gods. And the people were required to worship the emperor as a god. And they were the main god, of course. And if you didn't worship the emperor, then you were considered uh, a treason, um, a person of great treason against the Roman Empire. And I got thinking, you know what, this pl- pl- this environment of so many different religions affected every single aspect of the Thessalonians' life. For instance, to be a good Roman citizen, you would have to participate in the feast sacrifices, the celebrations, the games, and other public events. And most of those public events bowed to multiple gods. You would have to be present at them, and the community would know if you didn't go. Fortune-telling, astrology, and pilgrimages to shrines to get the answers of life, such as what's love, or what's success at business, or how do I handle health concerns, this was very common. Theatrical works often portrayed violence and drinking and gambling, and sex ultimately was a big part of the economy. Men were expected to have active sex life, often bisexual, with slaves, prostitutes, and lovers. The distress that Apostle Paul felt over Athens when he went in there and he saw, oh my goodness, look at all the gods that you have. You even have, you know, this statue to an unknown god was very similar ultimately to Thessalonica because they had just as many gods. And Paul would have been just as stressed. So this is kind of the environment. Paul, when he goes in with the gospel message, has to realize everyone in this community has multiple gods. Not only do they believe in them, but they believe in them because they want Rome to be happy with them too as well. So he's got to worry about the politics and the gods all at the same time. Let's look at the author and the date of Thessalonians. Now, here's the thing. When you talk about authorship of any book of the Bible and you start talking about dates, of course, there's always going to be controversy. There's always going to be somebody out there trying to contradict what people believe for centuries. So I'm going to stick with what I ultimately know and what I believe concerning both the date and the author of both of these letters. You know, this is some of the oldest writings that we have in the New Testament is these two letters. They were written before there was any church offices or deacons or presbyters were ever developed. Both letters were written during Paul's second missionary journey sometime between 49 and 51 AD. And you can almost see in the map, uh, if you take a really good look, his his, uh, journey started out in Jerusalem and went all the way up in through Assyria. It went all the way from there, all the way up into Troas, and you go up a little bit more, and Paul stops in Philippi, and then he comes down to Thessalonica. He doesn't get a very good reception, and he leaves there very quickly, goes to Berea, and then he goes all the way down, all the way into Corinth where he stops and he actually writes the letters. So, you know, this is his second missionary journey that he's going through. And this is something. This is after, ultimately, we got to know this, after the Jerusalem Council. The Christians at that council were required not necessarily to follow the Mosaic Law, but to make sure that they um, abstain from meat that was offered to idols and ultimately live with much more freedom than the Mosaic Law offered. Paul and Silas left Antioch at that particular point in time. They were commissioned. They were joined by Timothy later on. And they headed out and they wanted to spread good news to Asia Minor absolutely everywhere. 
But as they were going down into Asia Minor, and we know that in um, the book of Acts, chapter number 16, that God called them elsewhere, and they ended up going to Philippi, planting a church, and then landing in Thessalonica. Paul preached in the local synagogue when he first got there. He only was there, as far as we know, for approximately three Sabbaths. He was only there probably three weeks, maybe four at the most, and he got chased out very quickly. But we know this is where he went to preach. The rest of the week, he would preach on, on Sunday, on the Sabbath, and then the rest of the week, he'd actually make tents. He wanted to make sure that nobody could accuse him of taking anything from him. So Paul said, I'm going to make tents. I'm going to make my own living to make sure that nobody can say that I was just looking for money. He said, no, I want to make sure that I'm above board in all ways. After having received a severe flogging from the Romans and put into prison, they, or at least Paul himself, traveled all the way from the from there, Philippi, uh, down westward to Thessalonica. And several Jews and even some Gentiles come to know Jesus Christ because of his preaching there. But persecution breaks out and Paul flees. He takes off to Berea. He runs pretty much as fast as he ultimately can. He gets all the way down into Corinth, and that's where he's writing both of these letters. While these letters could have been written ultimately by Paul, Silas, and Timothy, all three of them, I think most likely, based on tradition and based on lots of evidence that I don't have time to present, I think they're all written by Apostle Paul himself. He references the other two, yes, but his vocabulary and his style in these letters is very similar to other ones that he has written. And the second letter, now that's the first letter, first letter to Thessalonians, the second letter, some people question that. Some people sit back and say, I'm not really sure if Apostle Paul wrote that, and they give reasons why, such as he comes across a little bit more harsh, a little bit more cold. The mention of the lawless man reflected Nero um, uh, Rabidius. Ultimately, he looked at that, and he said that was in the 80s and 90s, and maybe Paul didn't write that. They indicate that he's copied an awful lot of stuff from his first letter to his second letter, and as a result, some people say, well, maybe that's not Apostle Paul. Maybe it's somebody else. I don't think any of those really have good credence with me. Ultimately, in the letter in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, 2, 18, um, and other places, Paul identifies himself. He says, I am the one writing the letter, and that's all I need. That's, that's truth in and of itself. So I think Apostle Paul definitely is the writer of both of them. Now let's go on to the next point. What did Paul believe? What are we going to experience as we go through these letters? What are we going to find to be the truth? What is he trying to tell the community? Remember, he only spent about three or four weeks there, and he gets chased out. But the church it survives. Timothy goes back for a while. But it thrives there, regardless of Paul being there or not. And under the direction of the, from, from the Holy Spirit, they grow. It's remarkable. So what is Paul trying to tell them, a church that he barely got to establish, what are the points that he wants them to know? I think first and foremost, he wants them to know that they've got to remain pure and upright. He wants everyone to know that he, Apostle Paul, did not compromise his values in any way, shape, or form, hence the reason why he got chased out of the city. God's message to earn a pure approval from mere mortals was not something that Paul was interested in. He worked overtime to keep his own way pure, and his own. he wanted to be upright, and he wanted to be blameless in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the people. The second thing that he wanted them to know, 
And that was, you know, even though they refused the people to associate with the uh, temples, the city's temples and the other gods, the shrines, they refused to worship many gods. They refused to worship the emperor himself. That had resulted in them being greatly shamed by the community. Paul on that now, yes, I understand. Because you've taken a stance and you believe in but one God, and because you won't bow to the emperor and because you won't participate in the games and you won't go to the feast because at every single feast they're worshiping all these, these foreign gods. He said, I know the community is shaming you. Paul acknowledges that. I realize that. I got chased out of there for that reason. But he says, you know what? Hang on. Hang on because ultimately you are honored in the eyes of God as long as you are hanging on remaining pure and blameless in his sight. He goes on and he says this, he says, he emphasizes how important it was for, for God for them to keep their marriage bed pure. You know what? That's a, that's a, I think that's a theology that stands the test of time. That's true as much today as it is back then. The truth is, is a lot of them were tempted to go out and encourage to have sex with multiple partners, including partners of the same sex, same orientation. And, and the reality is, is that Paul says you've got to abstain from those sexual relations, lustful passions outside of the marriage. Make sure you keep sex within the confines of the marriage. Talk about a very unpopular opinion that Apostle Paul had, but at the same time, he's encouraging them. This is what God wants you to do. And fourth, Paul wanted them to remind them who, who ultimately oppose God, the ones that are persecuting him, he's trying to say, the people in Thessalonica, the group, the patriarchs, and everybody else who are saying, you know, I, we don't like your message, there's but one God, and we're going to persecute you. He wants to remind those individuals that God's in charge. The day of the Lord is quickly coming. He'll bring about flaming fire, will wreak havoc, terrible vengeance on all those people who choose not to know God and to obey him. So he's trying to give a warning to the community, the people who are persecuting the church. There's a day of reckoning coming very soon. Fifth, Paul wanted them to uh, clear, clear up a misconception. Some people thought the day of the Lord had already come. They thought, you know what, Jesus already come. He's long gone. He's left us here. And a lot of people are getting very distressed over that thought. Paul says this day will not come until the rebellion comes, until the lawless one is revealed and he takes a seat in the temple of God and declares himself to be God. And Paul's saying until this happens, then the day of the Lord has not occurred. He also wants to let the people know, those who died, in, in, who died before Christ returned, you're not going to miss out. A lot of people are thinking, you know what, what if Christ, you know, is going to return later and I've already died. Am I going to miss out on this glorious event when Christ comes in the sky and he comes to get his own? Am I going to miss out on that day? And they were very perplexed about that. And he sat back and he said, no, you don't have to worry about that because the dead in Christ will rise first and will come back. And then all those who are still alive will be caught up into the heavens altogether. So he said, no, you won't miss out on that beautiful and wonderful day. And the last thing that Apostle Paul stresses throughout the letter is you need to work. And he had a lot of people who thought the day of the Lord was coming and it was just around the corner. So they weren't doing any work. They were expecting other people to take care of them. And he said, no, you need to work. You need to make sure that you honor God by working with what you have. And that is a message that still goes on today of, of absolute certainty. So that's just a little bit about Apostle's theme. So we're going to get into that much more later on. Now, let me just talk a little bit about what would church life actually be like. So let's, I want you to vision yourself, for instance, that you're in Thessalonica yourself. 
So you're sitting back saying, you are now a member of this community. What would it be like? The truth is, is that you're in a city that's flourishing. You're in a city that has all the opportunities in the world to become absolutely famous and rich. You are blessed with a natural harbor. Ultimately, you have contact by the sea to various different places in the world, and trade is flourishing everywhere. You have a highway very close to you, and you have an abundance of natural resources and trade goods that come in through that highway. You are offered, ultimately, a glimmer of hope even if you are poor because the patron god of the city says he's going to return and basically give the poor food and take care of them. Your daily routine isn't just centered around work if you're part of Thessalonica. Can you imagine if you're part of that community? Yes, you're expected to work, of course, and take care of yourself. But at the same time, being a Roman citizen, kind of, at the same time, or at least a Thessalonian who is dedicated to Rome, you get to participate in all sorts of things that would be Roman such as you get to participate in the games. They had lots of different kinds of games. You'd end up having, you know, horse races and you'd have, you know, wrestling matches and arenas and all those other things. And on top of that, you'd participate in feasts, really big feasts with lots and lots of food on many occasions. Now envision just for a moment that while you're going through all that fun, you're sitting back saying, you know what, there must be more to life than just this. And then you meet this fella, this tent maker, Apostle Paul. He doesn't seem like very much at all. Amid his work, and he's working on a bunch of tents in order to support himself, and, and he's, he's, he's going through that. You're looking at him, and he's not rich. He's not famous. He's not powerful. And yet the words that he's saying is gripping right inside your very heart. His lack of wealth and power is intriguing to you because he does speak with authority. He talks about a unique deity, God, the God of Israel. And he says, this is the only God that exists. All the rest of them are fake. They don't exist. They're made of wood and they're made of stone, but they're not really gods at all. They're figments of people's imagination. And he says, the God who created this entire world offers you some things that this city cannot possibly get any other way. He talks to them and says, yes, I know you're rich. I know you're famous. I know you're powerful. I know you get access to lots and lots of money. And even if you are the poor of this world, you've got a God supposedly that's going to come take care of you, but he doesn't exist. So Paul sat back and said, here's what God, the creator and the ruler of the universe, the only God that exists, offers you forgiveness of sins. Your very breath of life. He's going to offer you eternity and a home with him in heaven forever. And of course, especially if you're a poor person in this city and you're feeling like justice just doesn't exist, you're paying quite a bit of attention. Even if you're rich, I'm hoping you're paying attention too as well. As Paul affectionately glares at you, he gives his customary greeting to you. He says, grace and peace be with you. This greeting isn't just an invitation ultimately to serve a God. No, it says in the book of Acts that God doesn't need anything from us whatsoever. It's an invitation to belong to his family. Yes, we do serve God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes. But at the same time, God offers us far more than just servanthood. He offers us a position in his family. We are his children. We are not just servants, so to speak. That's an activity we do is serve him. But at the same time, he doesn't require that. What he wants us to do is to love him with all our heart, all of our mind. He wants us to give us allegiance, our allegiance, our lives to him. That's what he's ultimately looking for. The conversation takes an intriguing turn as Paul looks at you and he says, to join this congregation 
is very easy. Believe in Jesus Christ, God's one and only son. And you're looking at him saying, but Apostle Paul, that's not going to be an easy thing. If I choose to do that, then what is going to be my fate? But you would be looking around, and you see the presence of influential women, prosperous merchants. You would see all these different things, but you would also see at the same time, yes, there's some powerful people that said yes to you, Paul. They do believe in the God of Israel. But what about me? Do I really want to do this? Because ultimately, if I do this, I'm going to show disloyalty to Rome. And if I decide that I'm going to believe in but one God, that means I don't believe in any of the rest of them. And Rome is not going to like that very much. And the officials of my city, definitely not. Choosing to line yourself with Paul and, and with his family, but more importantly, lining yourself with God himself, that means that you're going to invite persecution upon yourself, on your family. Are you going to willingly give up all of your idols? Are you going to win, willingly embrace the living God? Are you going to bow before the true king, the only king, and the only God that exists? You're at a conundrum. You've got to think about the cost. And this is why in the Bible it says, you know what? You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. We've got to think about the costs that are involved, ultimately. Now, you might think this whole thing is fictitious, and it is. You can't go back to Thessalonica any more than I can. I wish I could actually go back in there and see how they govern themselves and see the whole thing, and then I could write even a better sermon, far better than this, if I could experience it. But we can't do that. But what we can do is to understand in these two letters, we have the same issues today as what Apostle Paul had. I want you to invite you to place yourself within the story of Paul in today's context. You know what? The truth is, is that we still live in a materialistic world, just like the Thessalonians did. We worship many gods, especially, and I think above all, the God of self. And I think that's the number one God in our society today, ourselves. We look out for ourselves. Well, as North Americans, we are not conquered by external forces. I think internally we're a slave to many things, especially the passions that we have within our hearts, such as the lust of the eyes, the flesh, and the pride of life. I think we're, many people are enslaved to that, trying to get the almighty dollar, trying to make sure that they got far more than their neighbor. Many people are enslaved to that. Despite not facing systematic persecution to the extent of the Thessalonians, numerous individuals in North America opt for the broad path that leads to destruction, to avoid ridicule. And the truth is, is that our, our country in which we live, our continent in which we live, the world in which we live, still sees, a lot of people do see Christianity as being narrow-minded and bigoted. They sit back and say, how can you not possibly know the truth? How do you know that you have the only God that exists. How do you know that there isn't multiple gods? How do you know there isn't multiple paths to heaven? And when we say there's only but one God, the people of this world often look at us and say, you are narrow-minded and you are very bigoted. And we have that same pressure today as they did back in Thessalonica. In both of Apostle Paul's letter, he addresses the solutions to these challenges. He says, we've got to make sure that we live for the Lord Jesus Christ daily. But the question becomes, how do we do that in the face of such great opposition, in the face of not only political opposition, which we often see, but also in the face of a whole bunch of different gods that people are worshiping and they expect us to do the same? How do we, we fixate on the Lord instead of fixating on our own pleasure? How can we uphold and defend the truth to a world that believes in multiple truths, but yet at the same time don't believe in much of anything?
And how do we tell the world that believes, you know what, sex is just something that you do as a sport now? How do we tell the world that's not the way it should be? I remember I met a fella quite a while ago, and I won't use his name because I want to keep him anonymous, but I'm going to call him John Doe. And I met this John Doe, and this John Doe basically told me, you know what, Pastor, I got a real problem. And I said, what is your problem? And he said, I've got three girlfriends at the same time, and I've had sex with all three of them. And now they're starting to find out that I've had sex with all three. And I don't know what their problem is. And I can't relate to any of them because they're all angry with me. And I don't know why. Sex is just a game for me. All it is is a sport. And that's what this fella felt like. I'm afraid he's, 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 he's just telling the truth. A lot of people nowadays feel sex is just a sport. I've had others come up to me and say, you know what? I slept with somebody. I said, okay. And then they explained, I didn't really like them. I just wanted to have the sex. And this, be, this is what it's become today. How do we navigate in this kind of world? How do we tell the world that sex is meant for the confines of marriage only between a man and a woman? How do we tell the world that? It's not easy. It wasn't easy back in Roman times. It's not easy today either. How do we navigate persecution in a manner that honors God and directs attention to the love and the comfort of God that we've already received? How do we tell the world how great and awesome our God is? And yet, while we follow lots of rules and regulations that God gives us, he gives us far more than just rules and regulations. They point to us how to live a good and holy life and get closer to him. And how great that experience is. How do we tell the world? Additionally, how do we tell the people of this world who don't want to work that they should? Now, I want to clarify that before I get in a whole bunch of trouble. There are people that cannot work. There are people physically and mentally that are not able to work. Then the Bible's not talking about those individuals. We're supposed to take care of those. And the Bible talks about that. We certainly should. But what about those individuals who are capable of working, but choose not to and would rather live on the system? The Bible's very clear on this. Paul says, get to work. God wants you to work. How do we tell the world that? How do we tell the people ultimately that they are supposed to work? And how do we tell this world that, no, you don't just eat, live, sleep, drink, and then one day die, and you get buried in the ground, and you never, ever to exist ever again? How do we tell the world that God exists? And that the Lord is going to return someday, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and there's going to be judgment. How do you tell the world that, who's struggling even to think about him, much less believe him? All of these questions and many more are going to be answered in First and Second Thessalonians. I hope that you'll continue to listen to this exciting series. We're going to talk about all these topics and so many more, and it's going to hit home. It really is, because what Paul faced in that church of Thessalonica, the issues they were facing, are the same ones we are today. And he has solutions for them. And all those solutions, of course, all come from God. So I hope you'll tune in again, and I hope and pray. I know this one here, this sermon might have been a little bit tougher to go through because there's a lot of facts and information in it, but hang on to those facts because they're incredibly important when we go into the next part and we dive into Scripture itself and start talking about those issues. May God bless you today. Thank you for listening. Amen and amen.